Well, you might be squirming in your seat listening to that reading, uh, but uh, it's a wonderful uh, passage, really, that speaks really of our covenant God. That's what we're looking at this morning. Uh, Bernard Salt is one of Australia's um, key demographers and social commentators. If you've ever read The Australian, he has a column in The Weekend Australian every weekend. And uh, two years ago, he wrote an article with the title, The Decade When Trust Went Bust. The Decade When Trust Went Bust. And he writes, in the, the, the 2010s will be remembered as the era in which we lost faith in the very institutions that underpin society. The exposure of appalling behaviour by some members of the clergy and big business undermines the foundations of public trust. Uh, When the report on the um, Royal Commission into Banking came out, uh, John Anderson, the former Deputy Prime Minister, wrote uh, an article with a title that really says it all. He said, the banks took more than cash, they stole our trust. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but public trust is at an all-time low uh, in our politicians, in the media, in uh, the church, in the banks, in public health advice about COVID, uh, in big tech. Have you noticed that trust is at an all-time low? Um, As someone who works with teenagers, it is um, disheartening and dismaying to see that teenagers can no longer be confident that they're infinitely precious and infinitely beautiful because they've been made in the image of an infinitely precious and beautiful God. Teenagers can no longer be sure if you, like I did a couple of weeks ago in the holidays, walk around the Perth CBD and and see that so many of us can no longer be certain whether we're male or whether we're female with so many boys dressing up as girls and girls dressing up as boys. We can't even be confident as something as simple as that as to whether we're male or female. Now, please don't misunderstand. There is a real thing as gender's dysphoria, but it's one in 5,000 people, the the scientists will tell you. And believe me, it was more than one in 5,000 boys dressing up as girls and girls dressing up as boys when I took a walk around the Perth CBD. Trust is at an all-time low. Can we trust anything about anything? anything these days. It's a disconcerting thing that we're seeing. In the meantime, levels of anxiety and depression and suicide are on the rise. So is there anyone that we can trust? Is there anything that we can trust? To paraphrase the hymn, is there a solid place for us to stand or is all the ground just sinking sand? Well, I want you to see in the story that we're looking at today that God gives us a solid place to stand. And that place is his covenant that he made with Abraham. And we'll see the new covenant that he's made with us. But what if I've made a complete mess of my entire life? What if I've spent my whole life running away from God? What if I keep on letting him down? Well, friends, I'm sure those were the questions that were running around Abraham's head at the end of chapter 16. You might remember that he made a meal of things in chapter 16 with with Hagar. And and they ran ahead of God, they ran away from God, and what we're going to see in the story is the answer to these kinds of questions. And the key word I want you to notice as we go through the passage, Genesis 17, is the word covenant. It comes up 13 times throughout the story, the word covenant. It's a critical word in the Bible and um, it's also a bit of a confusing word that we don't 
really use very often apart from in the church. So I want to spend some time on what that means. And at its heart, a, a covenant is about a relationship based on the surrender of control. So I don't know if I've said this, but in the ancient Near East, countries would make covenants with each other. And usually what it would be is, is that an absolute superpower would enter into an agreement with one of its kind of puny neighbours. And what they would say is essentially, we'll give you our protection if you give us absolute surrender and obedience and probably a lot of taxes as well. And so these were the kinds of covenants that would be entered into. And so the choice for this weak neighbour would be between surrender with protection or independence with potential destruction when a big army comes and takes over. And so what we have in the story today is the ultimate superpower, almighty God, El Shaddai in verse 1, entering into a covenant with the weaker party, Abraham, or Abraham as he gets named in this story. But that's about where the parallel with the ancient Near East ends in the story because the God of the Bible, even though he's the ultimate superpower, seems to broker a covenant with Abraham where all of the blessings and all of the benefits flow from the greater, that is God, to the lesser, that is Abraham. And so we're going to unpack what this covenant looks like. And I want you to see as we go through it uh, four things about the covenant. Uh, and, and I hope you'll have your Bibles open. It's a covenant of comfort we're going to see in verses 1 to 8. It's a covenant of cutting in verses 9 to 14. Uh, it's a covenant of challenge, verses 15 to 22. And it's a covenant of compliance at the end in verses 23 to 27. Now, I must confess, it's going to be a little bit like drinking out of a fire hydrant this morning. There's a lot in there, but I hope it will be for your blessing and for your encouragement. The first point uh, is really the longest, and that's a covenant of comfort. I want you to see. Uh, and, And the important thing to see here is the background to the story that God has already cut a covenant with Abraham in 15, quite chapter 15, quite literally. Remember, um, Abraham, the great father in the faith. I mean, every time he talks, he's, he's just going like, Lord, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I believe you here. And in chapter 15, he's like, um, Lord, you still haven't given me any kids. What's going on? And God's like, Abraham, step outside, look at the stars, try and count them if you really can, so shall your descendants be. This is your inheritance, this is what I'm promising you. And then, and then again, our father in the faith says, Lord, how can I be sure that you're telling me the truth? And then that's when he says, go and get some animals, cut them up uh, uh, and, uh, either side, and then he, he falls into this deep sleep and slumber and then um, he sees this kind of smouldering pot pass through these animal carcasses and we're like, what the heck's going on here? Well, what's going on is that this is how they would broker covenants between the, the, superpower, the nations uh, of the ancient Near East. And what they were saying was, so shall it be done to me like these animals if I break the covenant. May I be cut into pieces like these animals. But the interesting thing about this covenant is that normally both parties would pass through, but here Abraham's in a sleep in chapter 15 and it's just the smouldering pot representing God passing through as if God is saying, so shall it be done to me if you break the covenant. May I be cut into pieces. And so God's saying to Abraham, that's how you can be sure 
that I'm going to give you these descendants. That's how you can be sure that I'm going to give you this land because I'm pledging myself to it on the pain of being cut to pieces, which is just not the way that covenants were brokered back then, where the big superpower would be taking all the weight of it. So that's God saying he's made his covenant in chapter 15. But the interesting thing about, um, the thing that makes chapter 17 so um, comforting and encouraging for Abraham is is because of what happens in chapter 16. God has given these amazing promises of the stars and pledging himself through this covenant ceremony. And what does Abraham do right on the heels? Chapter 16. His faith fumbles. He, he messes it up. He brings Hagar into the marriage. He doesn't believe that God's going to do it. They take matters into their own hands. They end up bickering and backbiting and blaming each other. She gets driven away. It's a complete mess. Abraham stuffed it up, our father in the faith. Even more concerning is if you look at the end of chapter 16 in the final verse, how old is Abraham at the end of chapter 16? Tells us. He's 86 at the end of chapter 16. And then go one verse forward, the start of chapter 17. How old is he? 99. How long's that? 13 years. He's made a massive mess of things. He's made a meal of everything. And then a deafening silence from God for 13 years. We talked last week about the difficult work of waiting on God. It's another 13 years and nothing's happened and he stuffed it up. How's Abraham going to be feeling? Well, this is why it's a covenant of comfort because God hasn't abandoned him. Verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Now, this is the word El Shaddai. It's one of the famous titles for God in the Old Testament. And this is the first time that we see the occurrence of El Shaddai. It means the omnipotent and all-sufficient God. In other words, Abraham, you're completely insufficient to this. You've shown that in chapter 16. But I am El Shaddai, the omnipotent and all-sufficient God. And so we see here the powerful nature of the covenant because it rests on El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. This title comes up 48 times in the Old Testament, but it's the first time is here after Abraham's made a mess of everything. It's a covenant of comfort. Abraham, it doesn't rest on you. It rests on me. So Abraham can find comfort in the fact that even though he still hasn't got even one kid, let alone as numerous as the stars, even though he hasn't got one inch of land, let alone wandering as far to the east and the west and the north and the south, and even though 29 years have passed since God first promised him to uh, make him uh, a blessing to many nations, even after all that time, God is still El Shaddai. God Almighty. So he finds comfort in the powerful nature of the covenant, but there's comfort also in the purposeful nature of the covenant. This incredible purpose and destiny and future that God gives to Abraham in the story. In verse 6, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Remember what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden? Be fruitful and multiply. That is your purpose. And he says to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. 
This is the purpose and the destiny and the meaning that God is giving to Abraham. In in a day and age where purpose and meaning and a sense of purpose and meaning is at an all-time low, here we see in God's covenant this incredible purpose given to Abraham. And remember, it was there in chapter 15 when God said, go outside on a clear night, look at the stars, reach for the stars. These are yours. I'm literally giving them to you. Descendants as many as the stars. Talk about a purposeful covenant, incredibly comforting that that is our inheritance and that that's what's giving to Abraham. We see it even more so uh, in verse 5 with the change of name. Did you notice that? The changes of names in the passage. Verse 5, God says, No longer shall your name be Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. Now, can you just imagine Abraham walking around and and people like asking him his name, I'm Abraham, and I can just imagine them sniggering and bursting out laughing. (laughs) Abraham, the father of a multitude, where are they, mate? I I can't see them. Uh, And that's the name that, that God gave him. I mean, how embarrassing. He's walking around saying that he's Abraham. But God's saying to him, this is your purpose. This is your identity. This is your destiny. And so God is so certain, even though despite all the evidence to the contrary, second half of verse 5, that he puts it in past tense. I'm calling you Abraham, for I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I've done it. It's done. God, are you blind? Can you not see? I'm not the father of multitude. No, I have. It's done. You are Abraham. He gives him a new identity. And we see it again with Sarah. He does the same thing. Verse 15, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, which means princess. Beautiful name given to her, that she'll be a princess, she'll be a queen, the mother of many nations. And so, friends, a new name in the Bible means a new identity, an actual change of nature. A change of reality. Just as in Genesis 1, just a few chapters earlier, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God says, let you be Abraham, and he was Abraham, the father of many nations. That's why in Romans chapter 4, as Paul, the Apostle Paul spends the whole chapter reflecting on this this story of Abraham and Sarah, he says, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. He calls into being things that are not. Abraham's not a father of many nations. Yes, he is, because I said so. You are a father of many nations. Despite all of the evidence to the contrary, despite all of your sin and making a complete mess of things, I declare you are Abraham. And so for me, despite all the evidence to the contrary, when I keep making a mess of things and I keep on sinning and I keep making a meal of it and I don't act at all like a Christian, God says to me through Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, you are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the old is gone and the new has come. Because I said so. Through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is an absolutely fundamental principle of the gospel that we're treading on here, and that is that our being precedes our doing. Our being precedes our doing. And so the way that the gospel works is God declares who we are through the gospel, through his word, then we get a new identity, and then we start to live 
it out and act like it's true. But have you noticed that because of our religious impulse, we get this exactly the opposite way around. The way that we operate is, I need to act like a Christian, and then once I start acting enough like a Christian, then I'll begin to feel like a Christian, and maybe I'll be able to identify I am a Christian, and then maybe God will say to me, well done, you've made it, you are a Christian. Can you see what I'm saying? We get this completely the opposite way around to how the gospel works, the gospel of Abraham. God says to Abraham, you are Abraham. I declare it to be true. Despite all of your circumstances, despite all of your sin, you are Abraham. And so he then is fundamentally changed in his identity because of God's declaration, the father of many nations. And then he has to wait another year before he starts acting like Abraham when he has a child. Friends, this is an identity that is received by grace through faith, received from God as a gift of grace, as opposed to an identity that is achieved, where we have to work for it and then finally God says it to us. You are Abraham. You are Sarah. And so there's comfort, incredible comfort, in this covenant that God is cutting And a third cause for comfort, we're still on the first point, is the permanent nature of the covenant. It's a permanent covenant. Did you see in verse 7, he says it's an everlasting covenant. He keeps saying it's for you and for your descendants after you. In verse 19, I will establish my covenant with Isaac as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. It's like we say in in um, in the liturgy sometimes around communion that Jesus obtained an eternal deliverance for his people. That means it's not just for today, it's an eternal deliverance. I mean, we say it, it's there even in the beginning of our liturgy. You chose us to be yours in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blind. In love, you destined us to be your children. Sorry, I'm getting distracted. It's, it's a permanent covenant and that is a great cause for comfort. An illustration, I discovered that um, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco was built in two phases uh, and the second phase couldn't have been um, more different from the first because in the first stage um, it was slow, it was tedious and there were 23 casualties, people falling down uh, to their death during the process. And so naturally the more that this happened, the more terrified and cautious the workers were and the and the slower and slower was became the project until somebody came up with the idea of building a massive safety net under the workers for their protection it was the largest net ever built or known of uh, to that date um, and then so for the second phase with the net in place there were only 10 men who fell firstly but they fell to their safety net none of them were harmed none of them were hurt And the process, that part of the project, the second half, was 25% faster than the first because of the comfort and the security of the safety net. God says to Abraham, this is an everlasting covenant that I'm making with you. What an incredible safety net. And the Lord Jesus Christ says to his disciples in John chapter 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. 
No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So the Son's got you and the Father's got you and no one can snatch you out of my hand. What incredible comfort that is through God's covenant with Abraham. We've seen a covenant of comfort. Let's look now at a covenant of cutting. Verses 9 to 14. You saw it there, I think circumcision or circumcised occurs uh, 11 times uh, in the passage. This was the sign of the covenant. It involved cutting. Uh, Just like the cutting of the animals, remember, in chapter 15. Uh, The cutting um, points to the curse of breaking the covenant, remember. They cut up animals to show, say, so shall it be done to me, like these animals, if I break the covenant. The cutting is about the curse of breaking the covenant. Except now, in chapter 17, the covenant is applied to animals. It's applied to Abraham's reproductive organ. Now, if you think about this, his reproductive organ was the source of both the hoped-for promise, remember God has promised descendants as numerous of the stars, and that's where it's coming from, right? So it's the source of his hope for the future, this is how it's going to come, but it's also the source of his failure. Because what has he just done in chapter 16? He slept with Hagar. That's what he did in chapter 16. And so God is picking the most intimate part and painful part and saying this is what it's going to involve. But he's talking about, he's warning about the curse of the covenant. Uh, Ian Duguid puts it this way. Might take a little bit of processing. He says, um, if God were to turn the sign of the covenant into the reality, into a reality, he would merely have to apply the knife a little more extensively. If God were to turn the sign into the reality, he would just have to apply the knife a little more extensively, cutting off Abraham's seed. If Abraham failed to keep the covenant, his seed would be cut off. Later in the story, we see another knife, Genesis chapter 22. In this story, it's a knife raised against the foreskin, but eventually he does have a child called Isaac. And you remember the knife that was raised up against his seed, Isaac, again, the source of his promise. It was on when God brought him up on the mountain and he was going to bring down a knife into his promised seed, Isaac, but then a voice came from heaven and said, no, don't do it, and God provided a ram as a substitute on the altar in place of his son, Isaac, so that his son could be spared. Friends, this whole idea of being cut off points us to the the curse of breaking the covenant, which ultimately points us to God's beloved one and only son, who was cut off not because he broke the covenant, he was the perfect covenant keeper, but he was cut off for us. And that was God taking upon himself the full weight of keeping the covenant. That's what it's pointing to. It's a covenant of cutting, but God takes it upon himself through his only son. 
covenant of comfort, a covenant of cutting. Let's look now at a covenant of challenge in verses 15 to 21. God promises Abraham that Sarai will have a son in verses 15 and 16. And did you notice what his response is to all these response to all these promises? I mean, it seems like every time Abraham's opening his mouth, he's saying, "No, nah, can't believe it, Lord." Look at verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Can Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? You see, this is a covenant of challenge. God sees that Abraham's faith is too small. He's still looking to human means and human strength to get things done. And God is challenging him and saying, No, you need to increase your faith. You need to expand the bounds of what's possible and God is pushing him beyond his limits so that he looks away from human strength and power to what God, El Shaddai, is capable of doing through his word and promise. Even though God has just revealed himself as El Shaddai, Abraham's like, come on, Lord, let's be realistic. Verse 18, oh, that Ishmael would live in your sight. Lord, come on, let's be realistic. I'm a hundred Sarah's 90, and we've already got a son. We've had a kid through Hagar. Can we let it be him, Lord? Let's be realistic. And God says, no. My children are not born of the flesh or of a husband's will. My children are born of the Spirit, born from above, born from the promise. I found it interesting that our sentence of the day in John 6, Jesus says, it's the Spirit that gives life, the flesh is useless, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. God says this, um, Ishmael, though he will be blessed, he has been born of the flesh and born of human strength, human effort, and that's not how my covenant works. The blessing will go through Isaac. And you know what Isaac means, right? It means to laugh. So every time they say his name, every time they see him, they're reminded that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. They're reminded of the challenge that God brought to Abraham to increase your faith in what I'm capable of, not relying on human strength, but on what, what, what I can accomplish through my word and through my promise. It's a covenant of challenge. Increase your faith. And finally, verses 23 to 27, it's a covenant of compliance. Because Abraham got straight to work on himself and all the men in the camp. Chop, 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 chop. It was a covenant of compliance. He got straight to it at the end of the story. He did what God said. Chop, chop. Sorry, I should stop saying that. Now, There's a reason why, friends, in the New Testament, we don't go into all the world circumcising people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just because that would be very painful and a massive obstacle, no. It's because we have a new sign for a new covenant. And that sign is baptism. The sign of the new covenant that God has given us is the sign of baptism. Friends, the blood that was shed through the cutting of the foreskin points us to the blood that was shed by Christ on the cross. He was cut off for us in our place. He bore the curses of the broken covenant. 
he was cut to pieces to keep the covenant of God's faithfulness to us so that all we get is his righteousness and blessing. That's why in Colossians 2 verses 11 and 12, Paul says, in Christ, this is to the church in Colossae and to us, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, that's our old sinful nature, by the circumcision of Christ, that's referring to his death on the cross where he bore our sins on the cross, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is the sign of the new covenant. And we're also given a new name, but the new name that we're given is not Abraham or Sarah. No, but the name of the Father. We're baptised into the name of the Father, which means I'm adopted by Him and I'm one of His kids. And into the name of the Son, who was cut off for me and tied for my sins on the cross and is my true elder brother. And into the name of the Spirit, who now that he's washed me completely clean, lives inside of me as if I'm a very temple of God and he dwells within me and says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's the new name that we're baptised into and given through baptism. So in conclusion, friends, we need to keep the sign of the new covenant by applying the sign to ourselves of baptism. Have you been baptised? Denominations disagree. Some people question whether infants should be included in the new covenant and, and receive the sign of the new covenant in baptism. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that children should be excluded. If eight-day-old infants were included in the old covenant, why would they be excluded from the new? Is God's grace lesser in the new covenant than it was in the old in Acts chapter 2 Peter when he says well they say what shall we do and he says you need to be baptized he says this promise is for you and for your children it's for you and for your children so if you haven't been baptized if you haven't received the sign of the new covenant can I urge you to do so without delay Well, friends, after the decade when trust went bust, according to Bernard Salt, 2010s, do we have a solid place to stand? The answer is yes. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he said, baptism, there is no greater comfort in the world than baptism. And he said that whenever he was anxious or afflicted, when he was tempted, when he was depressed or dismayed, when he'd made a complete mess of things and the accuser was telling him, you don't belong to him, he would say to himself again and again, I am baptised. I am baptised. And so in the words of the great hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand.
Amen? Let's pray. Father, when you revealed your covenantal grace to Abraham, he fell down on his face and he worshipped. Lord, would you cause us to be amazed and filled with worship in response to your incredible grace that you give us through Christ. Lord, fill us with comfort that you, our almighty God, El Shaddai, have pledged yourself to us in love on pain of death. Help us to marvel that the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the ultimate covenant keeper, was cast out and cut off on the cross as the ultimate covenant breaker in our place so that you could uphold your great faithfulness to us of blessing and fruitfulness. Father, challenge our unbelief. Help us to transfer our confidence from human strength into your great power and your great promise. And Lord, we would pray over St. Philip's that there would be many, many people who would receive the sign of baptism, of being brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. We ask, Lord, that there would be a great harvest of people who would receive this new sign in response to your gift of grace to them in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.